Good morning, my name is Kevin. I'm doing the second Bible reading today, which is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the public reading of his word. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, do keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 1. We will be spending most of our time in Ephesians 1, but we'll, we'll do a little bit of Bible flipping as well. But let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, help us to know you and to see you as you truly are, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, do help us to reflect deeply upon that and to see how it must and has to change our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why study God? Why this series on the doctrine of God? Well, it is my hope and prayer that it will help us all lift our eyes up and gaze upon the beauty of God. And it is especially important when so much of our world, our lives, it just crowds our time and our space that we forget so easily how glorious and majestic God is. You see, what we need now more than ever is to know God more deeply and more richly. I still recall when I was a younger Christian man, still at university about 20 years ago, I came across what Charles Spurgeon preached when he was 20 years old. I read of this in Packer's book, Knowing God, and it really captivated me on how 
wonderful, glorious, majestic our God really is. And in a sense, that's what I'm hoping for our church in this time. And so on the 7th of January, 1855, Spurgeon, as the minister of New Park Street Chapel, this was what he preached. He said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. And he continues, The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Now he preached that when he was 20. That was his desire and it is in sense our desire for our church. It is what I'm hoping for our church. That our soul will be expanded and magnified as we apply our minds and hearts to knowing God more deeply over the next few weeks. But you see, when we come to study God, we cannot come with the attitude whereby we see God like a school subject, like science or biology or physics, a subject to study, as though God is here and we're looking down upon him, working him out, determining what he's like, defining him. You see, our finite minds just cannot grasp the measure and the majesty and the glory of what God is like. You see, trying to grasp hold of God is like trying to grasp hold of a fistful of water. You just can't do it. And it would be wrong to study God with such an attitude. Rather, what we find is when we apply our minds to studying God rightly, we are in fact studied by God because it is us who comes under the scrutiny of God. But when we do come to study God rightly, it always drives us to worship him rightly. You see, right theology must lead to doxology. That is, right understanding of God will lead us to praise and honour God. And nothing expands the mind like the study of God. And nothing enriches the heart more than the worship of God. And that is simply because we were made for God. And so over the next few weeks, as we embark on this series, we must come to studying and thinking about God with a sense, a deep sense of humility and reverence. There is, of course, no way we can do justice in thinking about God over five weeks. In fact, you can spend a whole lifetime and our minds will still be blown away by the majesty and the glory of who God is. But we've got five weeks, and so let's make a start. Well, today we'll be looking at God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the different aspects and attributes of God. But today, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what do we mean by that? Because if anything, I suspect many of us would have great difficulties explaining the Trinity. And I wonder whether even some of us might be embarrassed by it. 
I mean, how do you understand or even explain that God is one and one in three and three in one? It just doesn't make sense. And we have trouble explaining the Trinity to our friends. In fact, one author, Robin Perry, he says, For many Christians, the Trinity has become something akin to their appendix. It's there, but they're not sure what its function is. They get by in life without it doing very much. And if they had it, have had it removed, they wouldn't be too distressed. And I wonder whether that may be true for some of us when it comes to the Trinity. But how do we get this idea? That there is one in three and three in one. That God is Father, Son and Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet only one God of the same substance equal in power and glory. Where do we get that idea from? You see, our understanding of God comes by revelation, not speculation. You see, in this world, people speculate about God and speculate all you want, and you only end up with a picture of what your mind can handle. And that is not the God of the Bible. But instead, God has revealed himself progressively throughout salvation history and he has revealed himself as father son and spirit and that is the witness of scripture that is what we learn a former bible college principal of the bible college i attended the late broughton Knox, he said the trinity is not a concept that the human mind can arrive at from its own resources it is a historical fact that this doctrine has never occurred to anyone in any of the religions of the world outside the Christian revelation. And so this concept of the Trinity is not something that anyone came up with. We couldn't have come up with such an idea. It came by revelation. And Knox goes on to say that the glory of the Christian religion is the Trinity. And so how has God revealed himself in salvation history? Well, what I'd like to do in the first part of this talk is to very quickly trace through the Old Testament and New Testament. And what we find is that understanding God is progressively increased so that by the time we reach the New Testament, we see God as Trinity. Well, we begin at Genesis 1, at creation, the very first verse. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what do you learn there? Well, there is only one God, and he is the creator. However, what's fascinating, which we don't see in the English language, is that in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for God is, in fact, a plural form, Elohim, or gods. But yet... It is used with the singular form of the verb create. And so right at the very beginning, we get this sense that God is plural and singular at the same time. And so in Genesis, we, we now find verses where it seems God is having a conversation within God. And so when we get to verse 26, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Well, chapter 3, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, there are various explanations for that. But what seems to be 
revealed by God only so dimly at this point is that God is plural and communal. And then when we get to the Exodus, when we come to Moses, God says to him in Exodus 23, I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you. But then in the very next verse we read, Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him, for my name is in him. Now what do we learn from that? Well, what we learn is that God is himself. God is distinct from himself, but yet God. And so again, it hints at something quite mysterious about God. It's still, in a sense, a little bit dim. And just in case we get confused and we start to think, that, well, maybe there are multiple gods we get to the Shema. Now, the Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen, and it is that passage in Scripture that every Jewish child would have memorized. It is used at the beginning of every prayer in every day for the Jewish nation. And the Shema we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the Shema. That is the prayer of every Israelite. And so how many gods are there? Well, one. Only one. Without rival. And it was repeated every single day so that there will be no doubt that there is only one God. In fact, the very first commandment makes that clear as well. You shall have no other God beside me. And then we progress further through the Old Testament and we continue to see that there is only one God, only one who rules, only one who is creator, only one who is Lord. But then we arrive at the book of Isaiah. In chapter 9, we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, who is this child? Who is distinct from God, but yet is divine? He is called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You don't call any human being such terms. Who is this being, yet divine? And in case, in the very same book, just in case we might be led to believe, well, maybe there are multiple gods. Well, in the same book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, we read this. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And so what we're seeing throughout the Old Testament, through salvation history, is that there is only one God. No doubt about that. Only one God, but yet there is some plurality within God. We're getting hints of that. Now, the Old Testament, it's like a, a room that's fully furnished, but is very dimly lit. You can't really make out so clearly what is there in the room. And so in the Old Testament, you can see that there is God. You can truly know him. You can see aspects of him, but yet he remains somewhat mysterious. But Revelation is progressive. It's only when we get to the New Testament that the light switch is turned on and we can see the room clearly. 
And so when we come to the birth of Jesus Christ, what do we find? The Word of God, conceived by the Spirit of God, comes from God and becomes flesh. And then at the baptism of Jesus, you have God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is my Son. And then the Spirit descending upon the Son. By the time of the New Testament, we see there is still only one God. But now we see more clearly there are three persons within this one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Trinity. Such that when we read the stories of the Gospels, and when we read the stories of Jews who follow Jesus, the disciples, remember these Jews, they were monotheistic. They believed only one God. They were taught to pray the Shema. There is only one God. But yet, they eventually bow down and worship Jesus as God. In the story of Thomas, remember him after the resurrection. When he saw the scars of Jesus, what did he say? What did he confess? He confessed, my Lord and my God. It was a confession that the very man standing before him is no other than God. I mean, that would be unimaginable for any Jewish man to confess unless it is true. And then we get to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission of Jesus to his disciples takes on Trinitarian shape. And you would know this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now note there the word name is a singular form of the noun. Singular. But yet the name singular of God is not just Yahweh of the Old Testament now, but it is Father, Son, and Spirit. One name, one God, but three persons. And so brought to Knox again, he, he says, The revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity waited on the unfolding of the events of redemption, namely the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Spirit. And so the God who is, the God who is Lord, God is Trinity and he has progressively revealed himself throughout salvation history. There is only one God and that is the God we know. And in one sense, you can't really be a Christian unless you know God as Trinity. Now at this point, you might be wondering, well, so what that God is Trinity? What difference does it make? Well, you see, unless we come to understand God as Trinity, it will only then make sense of what God has done for our salvation. God as Trinity makes sense of our salvation. And salvation would only work, would only be effective if God is Trinity. It can't happen any other way. In fact, it is at the very cross of Jesus Christ that we see God most gloriously revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. We see at the cross of Jesus Christ the inner workings of the Trinity for our sake. And that's why now we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, our second reading. One of the magnificent passages of Scripture, which considers 
the span of all eternity. In chapter 1, Paul is speaking of from all eternity past to future. And Paul considers the span of eternity, but yet the focus of Father, Son, and Spirit is on securing our salvation. And what we find in this chapter is that the Father decrees and ordains, the Son executes and brings about, and the Spirit applies. I mean, just even meditate on that for a moment. Why would God do such a thing? This is the eternal, infinite God. Why would God care? But that is the triune God we have. And unless we know this well, we cannot claim to know God. And so let's have a look at Ephesians 1. It is God the Father who decreed and ordained salvation. And we find this in verse verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is the Father worthy of praise? Well, we read on that he blesses, he chose, and he predestined. And so verse 3, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what that means is that all that is Christ is given to us. And we're not just talking about stuff here. We're not talking about you know, cars and gardens and toys and investments, but the things of the heavenly realms, eternal life, life in heaven, the glories of heaven, fellowship with the Father. And so the Father blesses and he chose. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, don't you find that just mind-boggling even to imagine? You see, before any one of us became a Christian, God chose us already. Before any one of us turned 12, God chose us already. Before we were even conceived by our parents, God chose us already. In fact, before even Adam and Eve were created, God chose us so that we might belong to him. And so God blessed, God chose, and God also predestined. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so what that means is that it was always the Father's plan that we be brought into his heavenly family as his children through the works of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so if that is the case, that the Father decreed such a thing before the foundations of the earth. Now when we come to consider the cross of Jesus Christ, when we consider the crucifixion, when God the Son was forsaken by God the Father, we must never think that that caught the Father by surprise. It's not as though the Father looking down from heaven upon earth and he was just shocked. How could you do such a thing to my son? Nor must we ever think that God the Father was cold and distant and stern and fearful and unwillingly forgave and loved us 
only because his son somehow twisted his arm by dying for us. No, you see, the works of Jesus begins with the love of the Father in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so the Father decreed. But here in Ephesians, we also see that it is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who executed and brought it about. He brought about the plans of the Father. And so verse 7, we come to Christ. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And so on the cross, it was God the Son who died. Now we must never get that confused. It was not God the Father, it was God the Son on the cross. It was God the Son who took on human flesh and bled and died. It was God the Son who paid the penalty for sins. It was God the Son who bore the Father's wrath to secure our forgiveness and redemption. And so God the Son fulfilled the will of God the Father. And that's why when Jesus was on earth, he was very clear why he was there in John 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, of course, this is not to say then that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, being beaten when he was crucified, we must never think that he was some unfortunate victim of the Father's justice. It's not as though the Father thought, well, the sins of the world, it needs to be atoned for, well, you are doing this, son, whether you like it or not. No, not at all. Jesus willingly went to the cross and laid down his life on his own accord for our sake. And in doing so, God the Father was reconciling the world through his son back to himself. There is a unity between God the Father and God the Son for the same purpose. Now, why is that important to get our heads around? You see, though there is a distinction of persons, there is no division of will. Though there is a distinction of persons, there is still only one God. Otherwise, otherwise it will be grossly unjust for God the Father to punish another person who is not God himself. You see, if God were to punish just a random Jewish man, even if he were perfect, it would be a gross miscarriage of justice and salvation would just not work. But what we see at the cross is a Trinitarian transaction on our behalf, whereby God remains at the very same time, God remains the lover, the judge, the justifier, the victim, the sacrifice, and the ransom. Now, if that is hurting your brains a bit as we just reflect on who God is and what he has done, well, it's in a sense meant to, because why would God do such a thing? A theologian, Donald McLeod, he was the retired principal of the Free Church of Scotland College, he puts it this way. The judge and the victim are not two different beings. Jesus 
and the Father are one, just as the Lord is the Spirit. On Calvary, Jehovah condemns sin. He curses it. He puts it aside. Equally, however, he bears it. He imputes it to himself. He receives its wages. He becomes himself its propitiation. He becomes the sinner's ransom. And he continues. God expresses his love for us not by putting another to suffering in our place, but by himself taking our place. He meets the whole cost of our forgiveness in himself by exacting it of himself. He demands the ransom. He provides the ransom. He becomes the ransom. Herein is love. You see, God the Father ordains. The Son executes, but yet united in the same will. But it is the Spirit who applies that truth of what Jesus has accomplished and what the Father had purpose to the hearts of the believer. You see, what God had purpose and what Jesus had accomplished remains somewhat objective truth. In history, it is true out there. It is true. It did happen. But unless the Spirit works to illuminate our minds and convict our hearts and grant us faith, we will remain in the dark. We will not believe and we will live hopelessly. But when the Spirit moves and takes the things of Jesus Christ and shows it to us and applies it to our hearts, that is when we have the subjective experience of God. And so when we come back to Ephesians 1, Paul reflects on the work of the Spirit for our salvation. In verses 13 and 14, Having believed, now of course you can only believe, and that can only take place because of the work of the Spirit. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And so you ask any Christian, how can you, with any certainty, if you were to die tonight, how can you with any certainty know that you are going to heaven? Ask any Christian. The Christian must be able to say with absolute certainty, I know I will. I know not just because of the love of the Father. I know not just because of the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for me. I know because of the Spirit of God who dwells in me. He confirms it. He assures me. He is the, the deposit. And so here in Ephesians 1, it's clear. God is Trinity. And that is the God we believe, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, without the Father's decree and electing love, without the Son's finished work on the cross, and without the Spirit's power and witness, there can be no salvation. There is no other way to be with God. There is no other way to be saved. If God were not a trinity, nothing would make sense. That, in fact, Tim Chester puts it this way. If God were not Trinity, who would offer the sacrifice to God? 
And if God were to offer it, who would receive it? The atonement, Christ's death for us, is a transaction that takes place within the Trinity. You see, unless we understand God as Trinity, there is no salvation. And the flip side is also true. Salvation cannot work if God is not Trinity. And so God as Trinity has worked through salvation history to secure our salvation. And of course, connected to that is that God draws us into communion with him. You see, what happened when God saved us, what God has done for us, is not merely, and we often hear it just like this, it's not merely that we have been snatched out from the clutches of hell. We have escaped judgment and condemnation, and that has now been replaced with heaven and eternal life. I mean, that is true, of course, but it is far, far more profound than that. You see, we have been drawn into intimate fellowship within the eternal trinity. We have been brought into the life and love within the trinity. You see, from all eternity past, God did not need us. It is not as though, you know, two billion years ago, God thought within himself, you know, being a bit sad and lonely, decided, well, let's create some people on earth and let's make some of them Christians so that they can sing praises to us, so that they can pray to us, so that each Sunday they can play a few chords on the guitar to us. Let's do that. Not at all. You see, God was from all eternity past within himself in perfect, intimate, eternal fellowship completely satisfied without us. Father, Son and Spirit relating to one another in perfect love and service and sacrifice. You see, if God was a, a simple monad, then you can understand why God might need the company. But the God of the Bible is Trinity. And so what God has decreed in salvation is that we are brought into communion within that trinity, within the Godhead. Now that should just blow our minds. We have to reflect on how wonderful that is, that God has done that for us. We have now fellowship within the Trinitarian life. And that's what Jesus meant. You see, it was a bit confusing, perhaps, when we read um, this um, a while ago when we did John. But John 14, that was what Jesus meant. When Jesus said, on that day, and the day meaning when the Spirit is poured out, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now notice the language there. It is not the word with, but in. There is this sense of mutual indwelling. And now notice the love we get to experience because we are in Jesus. The very next verse, in verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. You see how profound salvation is. 
It is not merely escaping the flames of hell. It is to experience the life and love that God as Trinity enjoyed for all eternity. And so what this means is that the love the Father has for the Son is the same love we get to experience. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love we get to experience. I mean, doesn't that just boggle your mind? God loves you as much as he loves the Son. And more than that, we have already read in Ephesians, we become part of the family of God by the Spirit of God, such that we can really and truly say, God is my Father, Jesus is my brother, and the Spirit indwells me. And we can truly say we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I know we use this term a lot. I know we use it quite casually. We are a church family. But it is so profoundly true. We are brought and united together by the Spirit of God such that we belong to God together as one big family. Communion with God and communion with one another. You see, that is to be caught up within the wonder of the Trinity. And so when we learn about God, what is it we are learning? We are brought up into that existence. And if that is true, there is nothing in life we need to fear. Not even death. I mean, at this time, during this time and season in our world, there is so much fear going on. I mean, the pandemic, it is serious. People are dying. Of course, we don't want anyone to die. But there is so much fear going on. But for those of us who are in God, in Christ, by the Spirit of God, there is nothing in life we need to fear because we are bound up with God himself. We are bound up with the source of life himself. And so I'm hoping to, that you're, you're seeing how the study of God is really there to enlarge and magnify our souls. And so finally, what should all this do to our hearts? Well, far from seeing the Trinity like an appendix, we can just ignore it or do away with it. Not at all. The Trinity is central to our lives. It is central to our faith. In fact, it is central to this world. In fact, it is central to the universe. In fact, it is central to ultimate reality because it is central to who God is. God is Trinity. And right theology always leads to right worship. And how else are we to respond? To Father, Son, and Spirit, but to give Him praise, honor, and glory. And that was exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Ephesians 1. Do you notice that? Each time he reflected on each person of the Trinity, he ended up with this repeating rephrase to the praise of his glorious grace. And so when the Apostle Paul reflected on what the Father did in blessing, in choosing, in predestining, how did he end? In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And when the Apostle Paul reflected on the sacrifice of Jesus and the redemption that is made possible because of his blood, how did he end? Verse 12, for the praise of his glory. And when the Apostle Paul reflected on the down payment of the Spirit, how did he end? 
to the praise of his glory. And so when we come to study God, when we come to know him more deeply as Father, Son and Spirit, God is not a subject we study. Rather, he is the object of our worship. And our worship of God is far more than what we offer back to God or how we try to serve God. It's not as though after this service today we all run away and work out, well, how will I serve God or worship God? Not at all. At the heart of worship is to participate in the Trinitarian life. Enjoy God and glorify him forever. And that should leave us all with a deep and profound sense of awe and wonder. I mean, what difference does this make? Well, every difference. This day and every day. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Come what may. How do I live? How do I face each day? How do I face the struggles of life? How do I face the disappointments, the disasters of life I see? Well, I live out my life as connected to God as I can ever be. God the Father is the one who loves me. God the Son is the one who saved me. He is my older brother. And God the Spirit is my comforter, who sustains me, who guides me, who convicts me, who directs me, and who seals me with the love of God. Amen. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, we do praise you as you have made yourself known to us as Father, Son and Spirit. We do thank you that Jesus is our older brother who died for us and your Spirit who now indwells us as our comforter to convict us, to reassure in our very souls that you are God and we are yours. We pray, Lord, that understanding you more deeply will drive us to worship you more wholeheartedly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.